Open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 13. Very interesting chapter. And I think we're just going to read down through the first 13 verses, and then we're going to go back and we're going to start getting into it, just to kind of get the, the flow of it. Notice in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoiahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. And he did not depart from them. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. And so Jehoiahaz pleaded, notice, <laughs> I love this, it's hard for me not to, to stop and just, but... <laughs> So Jehoiahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. And then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria, for he had left of the army of Jehoiahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiahaz and all that he did and all of his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And so Jehoiahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him. In Samaria, and then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. So, in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoiahaz, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did and all his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers, and then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Lord, we just thank you for this... Uh, we thank you for all of Scripture, honestly, Lord. But there's so many things, Lord, as we read this. Lord, it, it, it is so like human nature. And, Lord, you're showing, Lord, human nature on display. And, Lord, it, it's never pretty because uh, human nature, uh, of its own devices, of its own will, Lord, does not seek you. In fact, your word says that. There's none that seek God, none. They have all gone astray. They've all gone after the way of Cain, and Lord, we, are, we were the same way. And so, Lord, encourage us as we read this, Lord, that we would see in it a mirror, but we would also see in it, God, the, the wonderful grace that you've extended, Lord, not only to the men and, uh, of old, uh, your people, but, Lord, we would learn from this as well, Lord, about who we really are, especially uh, apart from you, Lord. We are nothing. And so we need your help. We need your help, and especially in the country right now in this time in history, Lord, we are in a mess, Lord, and we need you. We need your help. And we ask, Lord, that you would help the church. Lord, that we be faithful to do what you've created us to do and to be. And that's to glorify you at the very least, Lord. So help us to do it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week when we looked at uh, chapter 12, I had mentioned that the, the books of First and Second Kings was very reminiscent of the book of Judges, where you see the uh, just the people, you know, doing well, and then uh, when when they got comfortable and things were going well, then they fell into idolatry, and then God raised up enemies against them to chasten them for their idolatry, and then God would raise up a deliverer, and then they would get out of that, and then they would rise to the epiphany again, and it would just be this constant roller coaster. And, and Judges is like that, and, and First and Second Kings is like that as well. And it's a very difficult thing to watch, but, but again, such is uh, 
such it is in, in us too, apart from God. And even when we're trying to worship God in our, in our flesh or when we get our eyes off of him, we, we're just so inconsistent and we're just all over the map. And that's why we are always encouraging all of us, all of you, and, and, and I need to do this myself, is, is to abide in Christ. I need to abide in him daily and I need, to, I need to really examine my life every single day. I need to look at those things that have been uh, that I know are issues for me, and, I, and I, I can't play with them any longer. I don't know about you, but as I get older, I see these things from my past, these, these little foxes, these little, I, I liken them to little uh, shih tzus, the little, little lap dogs that yip and yap, and then they, they bite the back of your ankles. And if you have a shih tzu, no offense. Um, but uh, they're, they're like that. They come after you at different times. They're just nipping at you, nipping at you. And you have to shake that off. You have to put off that old man. And now is, it, it's high time for the church to really rise out of our slumber in, a, in our country. We need to rise up from it. We need to get serious about our walk with Christ and no longer engage and indulge the flesh. It will always lead you down. It will always lead you down. And so we must do this. For the honor and glory of our King Jesus, and for an example for those who are around us who are wondering what this is all about. And instead of getting angry and bitter, we need to be better we need to be much better. And I, it needs to start with me. And so let's pray for each other in that. But, uh, but let's look at this because um, we're going to see in this chapter the death of Elisha and this wonderful man who was a protege of Elijah. And uh, the scripture, so far we've looked at it, and Elisha had all he wanted when he saw his master ascend into heaven in that that chariot of fire, and he, he ascended. The Lord translated him, or raptured him, if you will, and took him from the earth. And yes, Elijah is like a type of the church, I guess. And especially Enoch back in Genesis, because he, he, he raptured Enoch before the flood judgment, before the judgment that came on the earth. He removed Enoch, and Enoch is even a better example of a type of the church before the wrath of God is poured out in the last days. For God has not appointed us to wrath, has he, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we looked at this wonderful man's life and just his ministry and just wanted a double portion. He saw the, the wonderful thing that God had done in the life of Elijah, and he wasn't a greedy man at all. And for you to hear that phrase of his or that request of his, you know, what is it, Elisha, that you, that you would want? What can I do for you, Elijah said to him. He said, I just want a double portion of what the Lord did in your life. And he wasn't greedy. He was just seeing the blessing you know, there's nothing wrong with really desiring blessings from God because they're pure and they're holy, they're right. And when God blesses you, there's no repentance in it. There's no feeling of ill will at all. And, 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 and it's pure and it, it, it feels right. You just know that it's right. And you're like, I, I, I'm just so thankful. It's so free. And see, God wants us to be like that. But, he, but Elisha wasn't greedy. He was just like, I've seen what God is doing, and I just love it. I love what God does, and I want that. Do you want what God wants? Do you want what God wants to do in your life? If you do, then it re will require a surrender. It will require a surrender. We have to surrender. I have to put aside my own, my own plans, and I had plans for my life, and they were very different from what I'm doing now. But I'm so glad because he had a better plan, and I didn't know it. And eventually he showed it to me, and I stumbled upon it. And I'm so glad that I did, because my life is more blessed now than it's ever been, honestly. And so it's good to give in to the Lord. It's good. And we're going to see that uh, Jehoiah has tonight, <clears throat> even though he was an idol-worshiping king, there came a point where he pleaded with God, and God listened to him. And I love the grace of God 
That even, even in these northern ten tribes, none of them turned out to be any good. They were all evil, and they all followed after the sins, the similitude of what Jeroboam did at the very beginning. Remember when Solomon, you know, there was, there was Saul, King Saul, and then David for 40 years, and then Solomon for 40 years, and then that kingdom, that monarchy, that united kingdom split in two. And, and then, you know, Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son, he began to reign the, the southern two tribes. And then uh, Solomon's general, Jeroboam, he began to reign in the northern ten tribes. But he, he started off an idol worship from the very beginning. He never stopped. And, and you'll notice the, the common refrain throughout the chapter as we go that this king did this and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and he didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam. And God is making us aware. He's pointing back to the progenitor of that kingdom from the very beginning and saying it never, got, it never was healed. That wound was always stinking. It was never cleansed. It was never healed. It continued. It perpetuated in its ugliness and never was healed. It was never repented of. So let's look at it. So in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Amaziah, Ahaziah, excuse me, king of Judah, Jehoiahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. One of the things that is very interesting about these, uh, these chapters that we're in right now is that there are a couple kings <clears throat> who had similar names. In fact, Joash and Jehoash. Uh, Joash is just a contraction of Jehoash. Jehoash. So Joash is a contraction of Jehoash. But um, the, the New International Version, the NIV, they, they make it very clear, and, and the translators made it very clear as they were referring to, because one of them is a king of Judah and the other one is a king of Israel, and they actually lived at the same time. And so there's a lot of confusion about which Joash, is it Jehoah? And you have to be really careful. Follow the footnotes in your Bibles and those little numbers and look down because you'll find that um, a lot of times it'll give you exactly who it is that it's referring to. Because if you don't have a handle on that, it's going to be pretty confusing. But thank God, the NIV, unlike the New King James Version, they, they, they made sure that Joash was always referring to the, the king of Judah, and Jehoash was always referring to the king of Israel. And the New King James Version, unfortunately, they, they switched those names around at different places. As you look in Chronicles, you'll see that where they mix and match these names, and it can get really crazy pretty quickly. And, and it did me. As I, as I was reading this, I just had to like hang on for dear life and look at all the notes and look at everything. And so be aware of that, because you're thinking you're reading about one guy, but you're actually reading about another, so you have to be really careful. And sometimes it tells you right in the text who, you're, who it is that it's speaking of. But it is important to know who and what is being spoken of, because otherwise your whole understanding of the idolatry of the northern ten tribes and even the slippings of the southern two tribes, um, you, you won't see that as clearly if you don't. So uh, just a summary of Joash. We looked at him last, um, last week. Remember, Joash was the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And he was the last son of his father, um, Ahaziah. And the other uh, royal members of his family were killed by uh, Athaliah, remember Athaliah was the, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and so she was a really great gal. She was just an exemplary Christian. No, she was just the exact opposite. She was a devil. <laughs> she really was. But she killed all the royal seed, and she placed herself on the throne for six years, and we saw that last time we were together. No other time has there been a woman on the throne of Judah ever, but she killed everybody else and placed herself on the throne. But thank God, a high priest by the name of Jehoiada and Jehoshiba, the, his, his, uh, his, his, I guess it was her, his aunt, I guess, uh, saved him as Athaliah was killing all of Ahaziah's son. They saved Joash and hid him for a time until Jehoiada, this high priest, overthrew Athaliah and placed the rightful heir, Joash, on the throne at the ripe old age of seven years old. 
And Jehoiada, I remember, was a great man because uh, this young boy needed somebody. And so Jehoiada, this high priest, was sort of like an uncle to Joash. And he raised him and helped him. He did everything for him. He, 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 he did everything. He prepared. He was one of those men that you just you admire because he just did it very good. And he, he was discipling this young boy. But as Joash got older and as Jehoiada got older, Jehoiada finally, in his old age, he dies. And then the princes and the people around Israel come up to him and, and up to Joash and they seduce him to go back into idolatry. Because all the time that Jehoiada was alive, Joash was cleansing the temple and doing the right things because his, his governor, his master, was watching But once the master was out of the picture, Joash, like a dog returning to its vomit, he goes back into idolatry and it ruins him. And then Jehoiada's son now, who is high priest, he confronts Joash. And Joash gets so angry that he kills Zechariah, Jehoiada's son, who is now high priest. He kills him. After all that his father Zechariah's father had done for this young man. He not only, he kills him and continues in his idolatry. And it's a horrible thing. And finally, when Joash dies, he, he doesn't get buried into the, with the normal kings of Israel. He gets buried in Jerusalem, but not in the, the tomb of the kings. He was buried in a separate place because he was not worthy. And he wasn't. He started off well, but he didn't finish well. And so Joash reigned 40 years, and so Jehoiahaz, king of Israel, son of Jehu, he began reigning at the 23-year mark of Joash, king of Judah. And Jehoiahaz, this king of Israel now, he reigned from 814 to 798 B.C. And have you ever noticed how the northern tribes, often it's called Israel, and later on in the prophets you'll hear it called, called Ephraim, But it's really speaking of those northern ten tribes. Have you ever noticed how they were just always languishing? There were signs this week. I was just going through this, and I was just able to, you know, label four different things of the instability in the northern ten tribes as opposed to the southern two tribes was very obvious to me. And I started to write down some things, and one of them was every king of Israel, the northern ten, were every one of them were evil. And yet, in the southern, there were a handful of kings, nine of them, actually, that started off really well, and then some continued really well. I think there was only five kings that were exemplary, meaning they were reformer kings. So as they continued to slip into idolatry, there were kings like Josiah, who finally, seeing the decrepitness of the kingdom, decided, we're going to change things, and we're going to clean out all of this Asherah and all these wooden images and all of these sun gods and all of this stuff to Baal. We're going to clean it all out and we're going to kill the priests of, those, of that false worship. And he did. And he was one of the best reformer kings ever in the line of Judah. But never in the northern ten tribes was there a good king. They were all idolatrous evil. So that was the first thing. The second thing was there were nine different dynasties in Israel. In the northern ten tribes. Nine different dynasties. And it was broken. That's why there's nine different dynasties. But in Judah, there was only one dynasty, David, the Davidic dynasty. And what that, all that means is that David had a son, and his son had a son, and, and the, the line of kings was very clear. But not so in Israel. And you can already see just the, the decay of what's happening up north. There's just so much, dis, dis, everything was just discombobulated. There was no order. And whatever there's sin, wherever there is sin, and, and sin free to reign, it will always yield trouble. Always. And thirdly, the reigns of the kings of the north were, on average, shorter than the kings of, of, of the line of Judah. On average, shorter. Because people would kill each other to get on the throne. And the northern ten tribes, because of their evil, it just bred more evil. And finally, the fourth thing, Israel was the first kingdom to go into captivity. The first one. And it would be, uh, what, 116 years later or whatever, that they'd finally, Judah and Benjamin would go into captivity. But there were probably other things in that list, but it's just interesting that the Davidic line of Judah started out in faith 
It started out in faith, and as they progressed, they certainly did fumble many times. But Israel started off in idolatry, and they never, ever recovered. And it's important uh, for us not only to start off well, but to finish well. And that's uh, one of the hallmarks, or one of the things we can take away from this whole entire First and Second Kings experience is that it's, it's good to start well, but it's, it's really good to finish well. What did Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? Let me just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24. Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race, they all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, but thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And isn't that what it's all about? We want to begin well, we want to finish well, but to finish well is going to require discipline, something that the church we need individually and corporately, we need discipline, we need discernment. We need discipline because if I find myself not being as disciplined as I ought to be, to put my body under. That means that maybe I don't go for, you know, and, and, and it, can, it can start very little with things. You know, we allow one thing to slip, and then it's not so hard for the next thing to slip, and pretty soon you're slipping all over the place. Pretty soon you're like Bambi on ice, you know, the the, the legs are out like that. You've seen the, the cartoon, and you're just spinning around, and your legs are all out like that because you're slipping all over the place. You're just, everything, there's no discipline anymore. It's just you're, you're just unbridled, and you're, you just don't care. And, oh, God will cover it. He's a God of grace. Yes, he is, but you know what? We ought not frustrate the grace of God. We ought not to trample it underfoot like so many do. Many churches do that. Oh, it's okay. God's a God of love. It's okay if you're a heterosexual male and female. You know, things happen, you know. I know you're not married yet, but it's all right. You know, God just loves you, man. Just stop being so uptight about it. And so what if you're a homosexual couple? Yeah, I know what it says in Leviticus 19, and I know what it says in Leviticus 20, but hey, and Romans 1, 2, and Genesis 19, but hey, just forget all that because God is a God. No, you have to stand by the word. We must stand by the word. It is there for our health, and when we do, we live long, and when you, when you rebel against God, it's only a matter of time. There's one thing that's true, is your sin will always find you out. It'll always find us out. And what did, what did Timothy, or what did Paul say to his young protege, Timothy? Timothy, for I am ready, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, as Paul is in Rome now, and he's writing his final letter. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and I have kept the faith. That was his testimony. See, that's what I want to do. I want to start well, I want to I continue well, and I want to finish well. And, but it's not going to come through osmosis. It's not going to come just the permutation of a membrane from an area of higher concentration to an area of lower concentration. I think that's the term of, I can't believe I remember that from science many, many years ago. See, there is hope. Anyway, but he kept the faith and he finished the race. And Paul could say that with the Holy Spirit as his, as his guide. And I love that. But notice verse 2, back in our text now. And he, speaking of Jehoiahaz, king of Israel, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Notice who the Holy Spirit always points out as being the progenitor of this wickedness. It's always going back. The common refrain is Jeroboam. It started with him, with those two centers of worship, one in Dan and the other one in Bethel, those golden calves. Because Jeroboam had to keep the people, and he kept them through worship. Because when they would go to the feast, those three feasts every year, they'd have to go into, the, into Jerusalem. And he's like, I can't have that. If they go back to Jerusalem, they're going to like it there, and I'm going to lose all the people. i got to do something. i got to do something. i got an idea. I'll create two altars, 
one in Dan and one in Bethel, and everybody likes to worship gold. <laughs> and, and he does, and it's effective. He leads them into idolatry. And several times throughout First and Second Kings, you'll see that common refrain, he did the sins of Jeroboam, he didn't depart. And sin is something that is inherent in man, but these kings of Israel in the north continued to perpetuate that sin of Jeroboam. Their foundation, their beginnings was corrupt, the root of the tree was rotten. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit, didn't he? And at the heart of worship, true worship is sacrifice. But Jeroboam made it really convenient. No, you don't have to walk all the way to Jerusalem. If you live up in Dan, way up in the north, oh, you don't have to, that's a long ways. It's not good for you. I'll create a, and he creates these center. He makes it convenient for them. And it's not even holy. It, it appeals to the flesh. And the flesh likes it. It's convenient. It appeals to my flesh. Wow, how much better could it be? We'll even give you a soft drink on the way in. And yes, you can bring it into the sanctuary. You can bring food and you got pizza, bring it in. Wings? Convenient worship. But worship was never meant to be convenient. That's why when we started worship tonight, I talked about the sacrifice of praise. Because it can be sometimes when you're not feeling it. The emotions will catch up if we will just start and get the cart moving. But what did, what did Paul, or the author of Hebrews say? Therefore, by him, Christ, let us continually go after the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him. King David knew what worship was about. These kings of the north, they, they made things convenient. They were following in the sins of Jeroboam, making it convenient. But David, he knew instinctively that for worship to be true, it must cost him something. Uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel, if you would, chapter 24. I'm going to read it to you. 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 18. And this is such a wonderful example, and it's just so the opposite of what worship is today many times in the church, not necessarily here, but in the church in the world, in America. David knew that it must cost him something. Sometimes it is a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes it's something else. There are many ways to worship, but notice Gad came to, excuse me, <coughs> that day to David, and he said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And the reason he had to erect the altar is because David, remember, he took a census in his old age. And, and really, the motivation was to just to gratify himself of how big is my army. And God saw right through it. He's like, David, and God had him on a short leash, and he allowed this angel to begin destroying people in Jerusalem because of the sin of their king. And as, in order to get the plague to stop, God spoke to Gad, David's seer, or prophet, if you will. He, says, he told David, he said, David, go build an altar and offer an offering to stop this plague. And so David does that very thing. So in verse 19, so David, according to the word of Gad, he went up as the Lord commanded him. And now Aruna looked and he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And this place that is being purchased is what you and I would call the temple mount today. Right where the temple used to sit was Aruna's threshing floor. This is the plot of land that David purchased from Aruna, although Aruna was willing to give it to David because he loved David. But notice what happens. So Aruna went out and he bowed before the king as he sees this entourage coming up to him up on top of the hill there. And Aruna said, why does my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. And Aruna said to David, well, let my lord the king take and offer whatever seems good to him. Look, here's a, our oxen for burnt sacrifice and the threshing in instruments and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. All of these I want to give to you, David. You don't have to pay me anything. I love you, I respect you, I'm just going to give it to you. It's a good thing that you're doing. I want to make sure it happens, and I'll, I'll give it to you. 
And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. And notice what, this is a huge verse. Verse 24, circle it, underline it. The heart of worship, here it is. <laughs> then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a full price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with what, that which costs me nothing. <laughs> so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David there built an altar and burnt offerings and peace offerings, and so the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So he, he knew it was instinctively there had to, be, had to cost him something, and see, that is the heart of worship, is sacrifice. That's why it can be a sacrifice of praise, because I don't feel like it. And honestly, I think of all the ways that we worship God, that's probably the easiest. Because there's something, in when I worship God, I, because I love music, and when I hear a great tune and a great melody and a nice turn in a chorus, it just lifts you right up, right? And all of a sudden, it starts making you feel good. But it's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about him. It's all he always has been. Now, that doesn't mean I don't, I don't get the fringe benefit of enjoying it. It should be. It should be joyful. And thank God he's given us music to do that. But Jeroboam and these kings of the north, they didn't understand that. It was all about convenience and all about the flesh. It was never about bringing glory and honor to God. And notice what it says there in verse 2 back in our text that, uh, that he did evil, Jehoiahaz, the king of Israel, did evil in the sight of the Lord, followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Underline that word depart, because that word in the Hebrew is sewer, and it basically means to turn away. Well, what is he really saying here? This is what repentance is, right? Repentance is turning away from sin, but notice Jehoiahaz did not repent, He did not depart from them. And then the anger, verse 3, the Lord was aroused against uh, Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, uh, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, who was his son after he had passed from the scene, all their days. So Hazael was a king of Syria. He reigned from 843, for those of you who, are, who like these kind of things, and I'm a nerd, so I do. He reigned from 843 to 796 B.C., and then when he passed from the scene, his son, Ben-Hadad, uh, probably three, the third, because I believe there was a second before this, his son reigned from 796 to 770 B.C., but notice the result of not repenting. Notice the result of the fruit of rebellion. God delivered them over to this pagan idolatrous king, and then finally, when he passes from the scene, Ben-Hadad takes over and is continually in their face and, 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 and a thorn in their, in their shoe, in a sense. And, and this is a good proof text for Romans 6.23. You remember Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is what? It's death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The fruit of rebellion is death. That's what we get when we sin. It's, it's something that we receive. We receive a wage for sin, and it's never good. We can never pay the bill. But notice, the gift of God. No, wait, a gift is something is given, and we're given something really wonderful. Yes, we're giving, we're being given eternal life in Jesus Christ. What would you rather have, the wages of sin that leads to death or the gift of God that leads to Eternal bliss with Christ. I think I'm going to choose the second. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Haven't we? I don't know. Have we? Everybody awake? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. The wages of sin is death, whether it's sudden or whether it takes time. Do you notice that? In Genesis, remember... The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Literally, this means, in dying, you shall die. Had Adam and Eve never sinned, they would have lived forever. Do you understand? But because they sinned, God says, 
the rebellion, there's a wage for that. So you're going to receive something for that rebellion, for that sin that you accomplish. You're going to receive something. In dying, you will ultimately die. So you will die little by little. And every choice you make that's away from you, you're just going to die a little bit more. And, and aren't we seeing the result of it today? When we're born... As soon as we're born, we begin to die. Yes, we may grow, but eventually we, we get older and then we find a spot. And then they take the spot out. And then we go through chemo radiation. And then, they, and then we're finally, next thing you know, we're in hospice and we're having morphine, a morphine drip attached to us. And then we die. And then where do we go? Do we go to heaven? Notice he says, in dying, you shall die. Yes, in dying, you slowly die. And then when you finally physically die, then there's a judgment. And then you will be resurrected to either the resurrection of condemnation or the resurrection of, of the resurrection. The resurrection of, uh, of uh, I forget what it is. Uh, it's a good thing. I forget the name of it. I'm stumbling on the name. But it's in, it's in John chapter 5. But that's literally what it means. And he would not repent. He just continued in his dying, continued. And so Jehoiahaz, verse 4, pleaded with the Lord. Notice, this pagan king, and, and you know, if I were God and I knew the history and I knew where the history was going, I would have said to Jehoiahaz, you know what, I'm done with you guys. I know exactly who you are. I know the games you're playing. And I know who your ancestors, I know exactly what they're going to do before they even done it. And I'm just going to put an end to this right now. <laughs> See, that would be me. So I'm glad that I'm not God because uh, everybody would be dead and I'd be the only one alive. And then I'd you know, probably jump off a cliff too. So. Um, but notice, Jehoiahaz, this idolater, he pleads to God. He finally gets to the end of himself and he's like, oh man, what a mess. And he pleads to God. That word pleaded literally means with tears. There was an agony in this. And he was pleading to God. And notice, the Lord listened to him, what mercy and grace. God was faithful to his covenant that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Remember the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 15 where God says that through your seed, Abraham, I'll bless all the, the nations of the earth and your seed will inherit all of this land. And he defines that land, the parameters. And then he says, as the sand of the sea is, as the stars are in the heavens, so in the multitude of your seed it will be. And that was God's promise to them. Even the 10 tribes up north in Israel. Even them, God would not rescind that promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to the 12 tribes of Israel. And 10 of them are up north and they're not doing so good. God would not rescind that promise. We would expect him to hold it for Judah because God made to David. Remember, we looked at that, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. He made him that promise that David, out of your seed, there'd be one who would reign forever. It'd be an everlasting kingdom through the line of Judah. There would always be somebody and it will be an everlasting kingdom leading all the way to Christ, of course. And his kingdom will never end. But he said that to Abraham. And God was not going to renege on his promise to even this idolatrous ten tribes. Do you see the grace of God in the Old Testament? A lot of people think the God of the Old Testament is just this angry man with a gavel who's just old and wrinkly and just, oh, I just want to... You know, he just wants to smash people. He's like, you know, he's like uh, Smash Brothers. You know, my daughter plays this video game. You know, just walking around smashing people, whack-a-mole. And God is not like that. So far from the truth is that. Anybody who has that view of God that he's just angry and just wants to punish and kill people has totally missed who God is. They haven't read the Bible. They don't know the character of God. So important for us to know the character of God. But Jehoiahaz pleaded with the Lord. The Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Assyria oppressed them. And I love what Psalm 103 says. It says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord, Jehovah, he pities those who fear him. And here is this man who's an idolater, and he's coming to the Lord, and the Lord's taking him. He's like, Jehoiahaz, what is it? What, what, what's on your heart? See, I would have been so different. I would have said, man, you've, you've, you've never ceased to blow it. 
So go to your gods. There were times when God would say, go to your gods and, and plead to them. But here, even here in the beginning, God is like, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to stir this faith of yours. Whatever is there, that uh, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he won't put out. He won't quench it. He sees this little bit of something and God's working with it. And see, that's the way God works. He, even if we're not a man or a woman of great faith, he takes whatever we have and he, he fans it. He, he, he puts more wood on the fire. He wants to see it glow and to be a beautiful, beautiful thing in our lives. And that's just the nature of God. It's so different from what we experience in the world, even from family members. God's love is amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. And the Lord swoops in. God responds to those baby steps, even though our hearts can be far from him. It's never too late to turn as long as you have breath in your lungs. Turn to God. Turn to God, whatever it is that you're involved in that you know is wrong, that you've been dabbling with, turn from it today and follow and repent of that sin and turn to Christ and it'll be the best thing that ever happened to you. When you're finally set free, and listen, when you fall, when you fall, not if, but when you fall, you get back up again, you confess it, and you keep going. A righteous man falls seven times, but what does he do? He lays there and wallows and waits for somebody. No, he gets back up again. He confesses it, he gets back up, and God says, okay, now confess it, and let's get moving. Oh, I can't, Lord. I've done this thing so many times, and I just feel so horrible. It's like, well, yeah, you do, because you deserve it. <laughs> what am I going to do? Just confess. Have you confessed it? Yeah. Well, what are you whining about? Get, wipe the snot off your nose and get moving. Let's go. How'd you like that? It's a nice thing in Rochester, wipe the snot off your nose. You know, it's like that little kid who's five years old and he's got a cold and his, you know, you walk into a thing and his whole, all those nostrils are just green and you're like, you almost want to go over there with a Kleenex and do this thing, but his mother's there and she's looking at you, you know. But God says, clean it up and let's get going. Let's get going. <laughs> that was free, by the way. I'm, I know you're very excited about that. I can tell by your excitement. But no, but that's what grace is. That's what mercy is. Grace is God giving to us what we could never deserve. And his mercy, God withholding from us the wrath or consequences that I do deserve. And so when this king now is pleading to God, God is listening. He's got his ear. And so then, verse 5, the Lord gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. Do you see the pattern here? I, I get in a mess. I cry out to God. God raises up a deliverer. Sounds just like the book of Judges. Very similar. And they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. I believe that the deliverer mentioned here may be Jehoash, or sometimes he's called Joash. You just got to read it in context, the king of Israel. Or it could have been Jeroboam too. Some scholars believe that it's also King Adad Nirari III of Assyria who reigned from 811 to 783. But I will say this, right here in our chapter in verse 25, Joash of Israel is mentioned in verse 25 as possibly being that deliverer. I think it's probably him. And we're going to see that very clearly as we go on. So verse 6, nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. So in the capital city of the northern ten tribes in Samaria was this wooden image, and it was an image, probably a phallic symbol of some kind. Some believe that that may be what it looked like. But it was an image of wood, and it was made to Asherah. She was the consort of Baal. And it was a female deity of fertility that the Canaanites worshipped, and but yet it was still there. So, verse seven: For he left, uh, he left of the army of Jehoiahaz only fifty horsemen. So God, using uh, Syria, totally wiped out most of Jehoiahaz's army that used to be so big. But now there's only fifty horsemen, ten chariots, ten thousand foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at the threshing floor. 
And, and that's exactly what sin does, doesn't it? It always diminishes. It always takes away. And I've learned this in my life. And I am so fed up with the, with the, uh, the circumstances of sin, of my own sin. I'm fed up with the consequences of the stupid things that I can uh, put my hand to or whatever. And I'm tired. You know, do, do you ever get that point where you're just like, I, I really, I hate sin. See, that's where God wants us to get. Even the things that are pleasurable for a season, those are the things that get us. But even after that, there's bitterness, there's heartache. It's like, you want to continue living that way? I don't. <laughs> I don't want to live that way. I like to lay my head on my pillow at night knowing that the record is straight with God and sleep like a baby. I don't need to take Ambien. I don't need to take Jack Daniels with Ambien to make me go to sleep. I can go right to sleep like a baby with no chemicals in my, my system. Hallelujah. Verse 8, now the rest of the acts of Jehoiahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Is the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, is that something we have in our Bible today? Say no, it's not. We don't have it. We don't know where it is. We have the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. First and Second Chronicles, that's what it's speaking of, the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. But we do not have the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel as you look at Chronicles, you'll see that it's all about the Judean kings, especially after the first 11 chapters. Everything else is about Judah. A priest, a, a Jewish priest, you know, understanding of the things that we have read in First and Second Kings with a little more information. But it's always about the kings of Judah, not, nothing about the kings of Israel. We don't have that in our Bibles. It's, it's missing somewhere. But guess what? God's, you think he's more interested in Israel or Judah? Yeah. Otherwise, this book would be even thicker. He didn't think it was a big deal for it to be included. But Judah, yes. And so we have it right here. We're reading it, right? And we will read it. So notice, so Jehoiahaz rested with his fathers. They buried him in Samaria. And then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, and boy, these names can get really tricky, uh, the son of Jehoiahaz became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned in, uh, for 16 years. And so, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice again in verse 11, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. Man, how often are we going to hear this? Just over and over again, this king, he, 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 he did evil in the sight of the Lord, didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash are the, and all that he did, are they not in his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Yes, they are. We just don't know where they're at. So Joash, verse 13, rested with his fathers, and then Jeroboam sat on a throne. Wait a minute, Jeroboam? I thought he was the guy who started all this way back when. Yes, a long time ago prior, the guy who, the first king in the, in the divided kingdom was Jeroboam over Israel, and now Jehoiahaz or I'm sorry, uh, and now his son, right? Now his son, what does he name him? Jeroboam. Why not name him something better? Well, because birds of a feather flock together. He names him Jeroboam. Well, why not a good name? Why not Daniel? Why not David. No, Jeroboam, because we're going right back to the right back to the vomit again, boys. We're gonna like it. That's where we're going. We're going back to the vomit. We're gonna go back to the pigs. He takes them right back there. So Jeroboam here is called Jeroboam too, in case you ever wonder. That's how they delineate the two of them. The first one was in the very beginning when the kingdom divided, but now they're well into it now. Into the, into the history of Israel, but now his name is Jeroboam II, and he reigned from 782 to 753, a total of 50 years. If you don't count his... Um, uh, he reigned from 782 to 753, and he was co-regent with his father, Joash, and if you add up all of those co-regent years and then the years after his dad died, it was about 40 years. And so notice verse 14 now in our text says, Elisha had become sick, and now Elisha comes back into the picture. He's been kind of uh, 
uh, you know, the Lord has been introducing other things, and now we come back to now Elisha, who is at the end of his life. He became sick with the illness that, from which he would die. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face. Isn't that interesting? This holy man of God. And now you've got this Joash, king of Israel, evil king. There was something in him that knew that there was something about this holy man of God. Something about him. And so he goes and he weeps over him. And he said, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen, And that phrase ought to remind you of the very same thing that Elisha said to Elijah as Elijah was being taken into heaven. Isn't that the very same thing? And basically what he was saying here, this Joash king, he's basically saying, you are more important than all of Israel's armament, their army. You're more important than all of it, and I know it. But the unfortunate thing is it really didn't produce because Joash's faith was so shallow and so small he had this momentary, momentary feeling for Elisha, but it quickly evaporated because we know that after this, he just went back to his old ways again. So it really didn't appropriate anything good in his life. There was no faith that was being demonstrated. And Elisha, you know, um, here, he, he doesn't wash his hands of this king coming to him. He, you know, as Elisha, this godly man is there, and he sees Joash coming in the door, he didn't say, hit the road, Jack. Don't want to have anything to do with you. No, but a real godly man like him is going, you know, Lord, maybe there's a a few things I can share. Maybe this last moment I have, maybe there's something. And that is God's heart too. Right to the very end. Wasn't Jesus like that on the cross? When he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Could he have come off that cross and decimated everybody? You better believe it. He could have just spoke a word and they would have evaporated if he so chose, but this is why he came into the world. Right to the very end, God is always gracious. You'll see that in people's lives. Horrible people living like hell all of their life. They get on their deathbed. They're hooked up to oxygen. They're about ready to die just hours from now. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes in. You know, this guy's a serial killer. He's an extortioner. He's, he's, he's done all these horrible things. And then someone comes in, a nurse comes in and says, can I pray for you to receive Christ? And he looks up and, you know, two blinks for yes, you know. And then he blinks twice and he receives Christ. And all of his sins are forgiven. And he goes to heaven. And the world is outraged. He should have went to hell. Aren't you glad God's that gracious? Aren't you glad that Elisha was that gracious? To Jehoiah, Jehoi, uh, um, to this king. Yeah, it gets it gets a little confusing after a while. You start saying Jeho- Joash, Jehoiaz, Jehoiaz. It gets a little crazy. But I love the grace of God in this. So finally, uh, and then um, let's see. And Elisha said to him, "Take a bow." And some arrows. And so he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, "Now put your hand on the bow." So he literally has a bow and arrow. And this is the last thing that Elijah is going to do. He's going to see this king coming in, Joash, and he's going to say, pick up the bow. He picks up the bow, and then Elisha puts his hand on the king's hand, and he says, now take those arrows. Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it, and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And you can see this. It's really a touching picture if you really think of it. You can picture it in your head. And he said, open the east window, and he opened it. So they're probably in Samaria somewhere, which is on the eastern, or the western side of the, of the Jordan River. So they're looking east now, and the Jordan River is somewhere out over there. And then over there is this town called Aphek. And he says, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. You must strike the Assyrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. And so there are two cities that are Aphek. One is in the, on the western shore of, of, of Israel near the Mediterranean. And this other city of Aphek is right on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So if you're looking at a map and the Galilee's up here and here's the Dead Sea and here's the Jordan, Aphek is right on the border, right on the shoreline on the eastern side. In fact, when we go to Israel, we go to this place called Ein Gen and it's a place where St. Peter's fish. If you've gone to Israel and you've been to St. Peter's fish, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's the place. 
Very close to that place is Aphek. And that's where this took place. And so he said, now take the arrows. And he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the, 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 the three times and then he stopped. And the man of God was angry with him. And he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have had struck uh, Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will only strike Syria three times. So there was an understanding here that we miss by reading this passage. That when he had him fire the, the arrow... There was an understanding that those arrows, each one of them is a, is, is, is a, is a symbol of faith, a symbol of, uh, of what God could do, the possibility of what God could do. And that's why Elisha gets so angry with him when he, only, he takes the five arrows and he just strikes them three times. I mean, it, had I known that, I would have just smashed them on the ground until they were just splinters. But maybe this king, this idolatrous king, was thinking, you know, I just don't know if God is that. I don't know that he would do that for me. Maybe three times. But five? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. And see, who cares what we think? Is God good or is he not? If he's good and, 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 it's not, and, and what happens is not dependent on my ability or even my feelings about myself. See, that's where we get so stuck we want God's blessing, and God wants to bless us. And even when we mess up and we do something really horrible, and then I've had this. Have you had this happen to you? Where you do something really dumb and you know you've really blown it, and then that very same day while you're just mourning over your sin, you're just like, oh, God, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. And Oh, what a mess. That very day, God does something and blesses you at, right out of the blue, and you're like, oh. You just fall down and you start bawling. You're like, are you really that good? Are you really that good, Lord? And you can almost hear him from the cloud saying, yeah, and a lot more. I'm even better than that. Much better than that. Who are you speaking to? Some impotent God who is weak? Are you speaking to Almighty God who spoke all things with a word did he not speak and, and things that were invisible, that weren't even seen, came to be? We live on this big chunk of rock that's floating around in the, in the, in the heavens. It used to not be here, but he spoke it. And now we're standing on it. And even if we got to one side of the room and rushed over like this, we're not going to tilt the earth. It's not going to wobble. It's a big rock. He spoke it. He's big. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Then Elisha died, verse 20, and they buried him. And the, ra the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. And so it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. And they, they, they usually put the, uh, a person like Elijah, they would put him in a tomb or in some kind of uh, cave or, or in some kind of tomb. And, um, and so as they were burying a man, then suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elijah because they had to get out of there because this raid was coming toward them. So they just quickly put him into Elijah's tomb for convenience. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So even post-mortem, God is still doing miracles through this wonderful man of God. And it ought to remind us of a type here a type of the sinner, dead in his sins, meeting the holiness of God, coming into contact with that which is holy, speaking of Christ, and then being revived again. And certainly this speaks of when Israel, yet in the future, when they look upon him whom they have pierced in the great tribulation period, and they finally see him return, their hearts are going to yearn for Christ again. And it says that all Israel will be saved. Then they'll realize that this one that we crucified is indeed the Messiah. And all of Israel at that time is going to embrace their God. It's going to be a glorious thing. It's going to be a glorious thing. So Haziel, verse 22, king of Assyria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoiahaz. So Syria, or Aram, they would naturally, militarily attack Israel from the north because it was an easy, practical means 
to attack because you couldn't attack from the east because of the Gilead mountain range there on the western or the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's not a real practical place to uh, attack from. So they would always come from the north and then down, and Israel was the first bird to be shot as they would come down, right? And they were the first ones to be picked off by the Assyrians in 722. But notice again, but the Lord was gracious to them, verse 23, had compassion on them, regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. Notice that. Again, what a wonderful verse of grace of God, keeping his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't ever think that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. As I read through, and I would encourage you, as you read the Old Testament, underline and circle phrases and chapters and verses that speak of God's grace. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. He's the same God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changed. He's never changed. And so Hazael, king of Syria, died, and then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Joash, the son of Jehoiahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities with which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoiahaz, his father, by war. So now he's reclaiming all of this land that uh, Hazael had taken from Israel. Now this new Israel king now is taking back that land, and hallelujah for that. And notice, here it is. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. Remember the arrows? Three times? Well, he did it three times, and that's all he could do, but he did reclaim. He could have done more, but he did that. And so um, what an amazing chapter, you know, just the end of Elisha's ministry and just seeing the, the grace of God, and just the horrible things that man does. And aren't you glad you serve a God who is the God of the second chance? Often the third chance. I said this last Sunday. He, he's been the, the God of so many chances for me. I've lost count. And you know, when we stand before him, I'll never say to him, Lord, you never, you never were kind to me. I'll, I, 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 in fact, I, I think I'll probably, and along with all of you, will be sniveling and crying at his feet in heaven out of thanksgiving. Not out of remorse, but thanksgiving. Just loving him and being so blown because, folks, I believe that's the reality of what it's going to be. When we're in the presence of perfection, the one who saved us from an eternal damnation, the one who loves us, the one who's provided a place, he's prepared a place for us that where he is, we might also be, where there are pleasures forevermore, holy pleasures, not the weird, twisted stuff on the earth, but holy pleasures, Things that just make your heart light and just, you're just like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And it just never ends. And it's always unraveling the beauty and the mystery and the holiness. Oh, my goodness. It just makes you weird in the head in a good way. I like that. Weird in the head in a good way. That's what I am. I'm weird in the head in a good way. I love Jesus. Do you love him? Do you love what he's doing? In your life, don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't pay attention to all the stuff that you're seeing on the things. Hey, God's got it all under control. He's told us the end from the beginning. He's got it all under control. Don't you worry one second. And I have. I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm going to be transparent with you. I've been wrecked. I've been wrecked privately. And it even comes out at times up here, unfortunately. I've been wrecked seeing what's going on in our country. It's tore me to shreds. And I've wept and I've cried and I've been hateful. I've been angry. And I'm just telling you the truth. But I've, I think God is slowly setting me free and just saying, Rob, I got it. You're, you're of no use getting angry and bitter about it. You're just going to drive your family away. The church is not going to want to come and listen to you rant and rave. So shut up <laughs> and talk about me. And it's hard sometimes. Not hard to talk about Jesus. That's easy. But we live in a funny time. We, we have to keep our eyes on him. There is no doubt. That is the first and foremost important thing. And it doesn't mean we hide our head in the sand. 
But folks, and don't do like I did. And I hope that, and pray for me and I'll pray for you. I don't want to get my, I don't want to get so down in the dumps like I was. I don't want to have my, just destroyed. And then God's like, why are you doing that, Rob? Didn't you just share revelation? Don't you know these things are coming? Yeah, Lord, I know, but I just didn't think it was going to be on my watch. And he's like, don't worry about it. You just walk with me. You just walk with me. You get filled up with me every day, and you continue to do what I want you to do. Be a light. Be a, an encouragement to, your, to, to my people, God would say. And I'm like, oh, God, help me to do that. Because I haven't been. I'll be honest with you. Now, forgive me. But it's what we need to do. It's what I need to do. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this time. And Lord, thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters. And Lord, pray that you would encourage us, Lord, as we read this book, this holy book of yours. And Lord, may it get, take deep root in our life. And may you change us, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes firmly, firmly fixed on you. Lord, as the song we sing, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you, Lord. You be the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.